Turn to Nehemiah 10. We'll actually begin the last verse of Nehemiah 9, but Nehemiah 10 will be our primary focus this evening. While you're finding that text, let's pray together for a moment. Our Father, we thank you so much that last hymn we sang, Lord, is so encouraging to us and so biblical and so right that we are to have a proper view of our present and that it is rooted in the future. What you have done at the cross through Christ, now present in our present salvation, will be consummated, Lord, in a glorious day. Every person here, Lord, believes in that glorious day. By faith, we've read the words. We have seen in the Word of God what that day will be. But how glorious it will be to see you with our own eyes to enter into the heavenly kingdom, to enter into eternity with you. And so we do pray, Lord, to have the courage to continue on, to press on, to be as effective for your kingdom as we can be, to be as bold for your kingdom as we can be, to be as giving toward the things of heaven as we can be. Tonight, Lord, as we open your word once again, this wonderful little book of Ezra Nehemiah, we ask you to open our hearts to be softened to how we need to be more like Christ. Open our minds to understand the truth and bless our souls with the the thrill of knowing that we have encountered the living God in His Word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The Christian is part of a group known as God's chosen people and We didn't make that phrase up. It's one that's all over Scripture. And in particular, Ephesians 1 and 2 demonstrates this in multiple ways. Chapter 1, verse 4 of Ephesians, we're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Chapter 1, verse 5, we're predestined to adoption as sons through Christ according to the good pleasure of His will. We are chosen people. Chapter 1, verse 7, we have redemption through the blood of Christ representing the atonement given by His death. Chapter 1, verse 13, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit as a pledge, a promise of our inheritance to come. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, we're, we were spiritually dead in our transgressions and sins, but we've been made alive together with Christ. We've been saved by His grace. And chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places, so that in the ages to come He might show us the surpassing riches of His grace, that the Lord Jesus Christ has an eagerness about Him to show us all the riches of heaven and of glory. And this glorious and magnificent outlining of the gracious, the gracious actions of God to us from Ephesians 1 all the way through chapter 2, Verse 9, His calling us out as His chosen people. That whole section, which is a celebration of the biblical gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It culminates, though, with a particular fact about our lives as the chosen people of Christ. The chosen people of God. And it culminates in Ephesians 2, verse 10, which says... For we are His workmanship. It's a a word that means His masterpiece. a, A work of art. Something that He made. We are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We were chosen by God for salvation 
We are saved, sealed, and seated with Christ. Why? For good works. Works which God prepared in eternity past that you might glorify Him by showing what a changed life looks like. Showing what, to use a more Old Testament terminology, being in covenant relationship with God looks like. Paul said in Philippians 1.27 that you are to live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what we're here for. We are here to walk in those good works. Not to gain salvation, obviously, but because we are recipients of salvation. And that's what I'd like to look at this evening as we travel back in time to about the year 444 B.C., The descendants of the returned exiles have been in a time of spiritual renewal and and refreshing for nearly a month after completing the repairs on the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. They've gathered to hear the Word of God read in a 24-day period. Three times they have heard God's law in the Torah, the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, read aloud three times, as well as it being preached and explained. And in humility and in brokenness, God's people have confessed that God has been faithful and His people have not. And they've confessed this in chapter 9. They've confessed as a people in chapter 9, verse 33, that over the centuries, everything that God has done to them, every punishment, every discipline, every trial, every pain, every disaster, every catastrophe, all of the things that God has done to them in righteous indignation has been deserved. And they say, you are righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt in truth, but we have acted wickedly. That God has been faithful and the people have not. And now in this moment of humbling and in in humiliation really, in response to this conviction, in response to this confession, Israel determines to make an agreement with God, to renew covenant relations with Him. And to reaffirm their desire to live in covenant peace with God by obeying their heavenly king, obeying their heavenly protector, obeying their creator. And what they're going to show is that true repentance isn't just acknowledgement of sin against God. It's a resolution to live in covenant relationship with the Lord, a binding loyalty to Him. It is not a little, I'm sorry. It is, we covenant to live in loyalty to you. And in fact, they put this resolution in writing. Nehemiah 9.38, the last verse of chapter 9. Now because of all this, we are cutting an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Chapter 10. Now on the sealed document were the following names. Nehemiah the government, the governor rather, the son of Hekeliah and Zedekiah. And we'll stop right there for a minute. In verse 1, the governor, Nehemiah himself, he is the first to sign this resolution. In verses 2 through 8 of chapter 10, all the priests sign the resolution, 22 of them, into verse 1 all the way through verse 8. In verses 9 through 13, all the Levites, the helpers and servants in this theocratic nation that, that assist with the worship of God, they sign the resolution. And in verses 14 all the way to 27, All the family leaders of the people signed the resolution. 84 leaders in all. What we might call the elders of the nation, all of them agree to covenant loyalty to God. Let me give you a modern day equivalent. All of you have signed, if you're members here, you've signed a membership covenant. 
Well, Israel signed one too, if you want to call it that, back at Mount Sinai. They agreed to, uh, to obey God and to be in covenant with Him. They agreed in, in the time of the, uh, just before the conquest in Deuteronomy. They agreed to follow the law of God. The modern day equivalent would be to say that we're going to have a, a ceremony where all the members of Grace Bible Church reaffirm the membership covenant. Well, that's what's happening here. This is a, an amazing event. And now verse 28 lumps those leaders in with everyone else to join in a verbal agreement. Verse 28, now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding are joining with their relatives, their nobles, and are entering into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by the hand of Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to do all the commandments of Yahweh our God and his judgments and his statutes. Verse 29 has this interesting phrase, we're entering into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, meaning that if they swerve at all from their covenant loyalty, if they become now disloyal and they they swerve into idolatry and disobedience once again, they agree that God should curse them, that God should punish them. This is an amazing day. The entirety of God's people in Israel have agreed to obey the Lord. They They have reconfirmed their covenant loyalty. And notice the totality of those making agreement here. Verse 28, all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters. This is the same group that began gathering almost a month earlier in Nehemiah 8. Verse 1, and all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in the front of the water gate and said to Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which Yahweh had commanded to Israel And here it is. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could understand when listening on the first day of the seventh month. All who could understand when listening. When we went through that text, we indicated that this means even the children old enough to comprehend the truth of God. That yes, children can be in covenant relationship with God. The Apostle Paul affirms this in the New Testament in Ephesians 6. Paul commands children to obey their parents in the Lord, meaning children who are saved, children who have made a profession of faith in Christ are expected to demonstrate covenant loyalty to God, and they do that by obeying their parents. Isn't that nice of the Lord? He gives children one law to remember, obey mom and dad, that's it. Children who refuse to obey their parents are clearly not in covenant relationship with God because they're in rebellion and they're outside the covenant joys of Christ. But now, here in this time, the the people kind of put their money where their mouth is, so to speak. Because not only do they make a a written general resolution to live in loving covenant obedience to their God, but they make specific resolutions about specific areas of obedience in which they they live out the fact that they are a set-apart people. They are a holy people unto God. And they get very specific And they make some huge resolutions. And I'd like to show you three of them. Three specific resolutions. Now we are still at the beginning of 2023 when many make New Year's resolutions. And I want this to be as immediately applicable to us as a church 
as possible. So I'm going to label each of these resolutions with the equivalent resolution for us in the church age, and then we'll work our way to each one. I'll give them to you up front. Here are three resolutions that we could take from this text. Resolve to identify with Christ. Resolve to identify with Christ. Resolve to increase your faith. Resolve to increase your faith and resolve to intensify the church. Resolve to intensify the church. So resolve to identify with Christ, to increase your faith, and to intensify the church. First resolution, resolve to identify with Christ. And we're going to camp on this one for a while here. Nehemiah 10, verse 30. Now they get specific. And that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. In both Ezra and Nehemiah, we've seen in multiple times in which God's people defied God's law by intermarrying with surrounding peoples. Now, just to be clear, this isn't some sort of racist decree. This is purely spiritual in nature. According to the law of God, any person of any people group may come and join God's people. That is perfectly fine. They may come by faith and become part of God's covenant people, worshipers of the one true living God. That's not the issue. This is not speaking of people who come into Israel from other, uh, other people groups. The issue here is that people had been multiple times in Ezra and Nehemiah sporadically intermarrying with surrounding peoples. And there's two major problems with this. First of all, they're threatening to water down the ethnic distinction of Israel as being descended from Abraham and, and through which the promises of Abraham would be accomplished. They were to be an ethnic nation that was identifiable as those descended from Abraham. But the second problem is that this intermarrying all throughout their history was always one hundred percent of the time accompanied by being influenced by and even appropriating the worship of pagan gods this wasn't a case of of a moabite woman coming and becoming an israelite like ruth this is the case of appropriating and trying to intermingle the true faith in god and all these pagan gods and putting it all together You may recall Ezra chapter 10 in which Ezra wept before the Lord because so many men had taken foreign wives and even had children by them. And as he confronted them, they confessed. And in what must have been very, very painful repentance since the consequences of sin are very painful at times, they sent away all those wives and the children born from them. Why? Because God's people are to be holy. They are to be set apart. They are different from the world. And the message there was either you identify with God as one of His, set apart under covenant loyalty, in covenant relationship with Him, or you risk His discipline, His chastisement for trying to play both sides of the fence. In other words, God demands a purified people, a people who identify with Him and Him alone. This has never changed. This has always been God's standard. When you received Christ as your Savior, you came into covenant relationship with God through Christ. And as I read earlier in Ephesians 2.10, this is borne out, this is demonstrated, this is shown by the good works that God has prepared beforehand for you to do, to be holy, to be set apart. And one of these good works would address the idea of purity as a people. 
This idea of purity as the people of God is a a concept that I believe in great measure has been lost in the American evangelical church in the name of welcome everybody no matter what they believe. You've probably seen this on social media or in the news in recent days. Andy Stanley has been highlighted for his clear position as an influential false teacher publicly and with great clarity denying the sufficiency of Scripture and the need for any sort of biblical standard. And he has to do that because in addition to that, he praises with great words the homosexual and transsexual communities for lighting the way in the church and showing what it means to persevere in the face of so-called persecution. That all the, all the Christians who are trying to obey the Word of God should really step back and look up to these who are living in sin as those who are really the brave ones, really the, the true heroes. But the New Testament teaching on the set-apart nature of God's people, the fact that as Jesus prayed in John seventeen sixteen that we are not of this world, The idea of a purified people, not a perfected people, that comes in heaven, but a purified people who are determined to live in covenant obedience to Christ, this idea has been almost completely abandoned. Very few churches will hold to this as evidenced by the fact that that very few churches will set any sort of standards whatsoever. So what does the New Testament teach us about being a purified people, set apart to identify with Christ and Christ alone. Think about Paul's personal example. In Galatians 6.14, he said, But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is amazing. He's saying the world is dead to me and I'm dead to the world. What he means by that is that he's dead to the pointless, aimless philosophical systems, which includes every belief system except for biblical Christianity. His focus is solely on the cross. His boast is only in Christ. The Apostle Peter reminds us that we are visitors in a place that we no longer belong in terms of the rule of Satan in this world. 1 Peter 2.11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul And this completely identifying with Christ by seeking a holy life is also, by the way, the means, according to Peter, that the world sees the gospel and that they would seek God themselves. Peter goes on to say, by keeping your conduct excellent among the Gentiles, meaning the unbelievers, so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good works as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. What does that mean? To glorify God is a phrase that is very much used in the salvific sense. That they're glorifying God by submitting to salvation offered in Christ. What does it mean to glorify God in the day of visitation? That when they have, as it were, their first interview with the Lord Jesus Christ as a believer in Christ, that they would point to you or to you or to you and say, I came to faith because this man, this woman lived a set-apart life and I knew something was different about them. Or consider the New Testament instructions concerning the purity of the church. The church is called to be striving for Christ-likeness. Our theme verse of Colossians 1.28, the maturing of the saints in Christ. This was Paul's clear, spirit-led call to the church. And 
Paul told the Galatian church in Galatians 4.19 that he felt like he was in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That was his, that was his plea. That was his, his call was that Christ is formed in you. That you're purified. The very first command concerning the church we have from the head of the church, the Lord Jesus, the very first one has to do with the set-apart and pure nature of the church. This purity starts all the way at the one-on-one level relationship. In Matthew 18, Jesus mandated that when your brother sins against you, you have a responsibility to confront this sin. And, and the manner in which you are to confront this sin is to be in the spirit of gentleness, since Jesus said the goal is to win your brother or gain your brother. But if there's a lack of responsiveness, of humility, of a desire to repent or talk through the issue, Jesus mandated the escalation of this conflict until it, it finally reaches the ears of the whole church to call this person to repentance. And if there's still a hard-heartedness in sin, that person is to be treated by the whole church as a, a, Jesus said, as a Gentile or a tax collector, meaning someone who is apart from the faith. That doesn't mean we make a judgment to say we know that this person is not saved, but we make a judgment in terms of saying to that person, I'm going to treat you like an unsaved person because that's how you're acting. Because saved people have a tender heart and they repent and they're sorrowful over their own sin and you're not. And how important is this purity of the church? Jesus said that heaven agrees with these decisions made by local churches. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Numbers of times our elders have had to warn somebody who's on the verge of church discipline, on the, on the verge of being treated as a Gentile and a tax collector, that you can't run from this. You can't just decide, well, I'll just go to another church or I'll move out of state because God will follow you. You will never live a blessed life because heaven agreed with this decision. That's a weighty, weighty thing. Paul made a specific list of unrepentant habitual sins which indicate that someone ought to be put out of the church. In 1 Corinthians 5, 10 and 11 and 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, Paul lists... And he's very clear that he's not speaking about unbelievers. He's not speaking of those who who don't claim to be Christians. Of course, they're going to act out in the flesh. But specifically those who name the name of Christ, who have publicly demonstrated that I have faith in Christ. They've been baptized, perhaps, or they have made a public claim. And yet they continue in these sins without any attempt at righteousness, no attempt at holiness, not fighting those leftover tendencies from an unregenerate life. And Paul gives a specific list of these habitual sins. Sexually immoral people, the greedy, swindlers, idolaters, revilers, meaning abusers, drunkards, adulterers, effeminate, men trying to act like women, homosexuals, thieves. And Paul makes the salvation distinction very clear in 1 Corinthians 6.11. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. What is the church to do with the one who refuses to fight those sin tendencies while claiming to be in the faith? He said in 1 Corinthians 5.13, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Why? Because the church is the bride of Christ, and the bride of Christ is not to knowingly smear mud and trash and filth on herself. 
We belong to Christ. In the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul commanded them in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with, with darkness? Unequally yoked means to be bound together. And this is a picture actually drawn from Deuteronomy chapter 22, where the law prohibits plowing a field with an ox and a donkey yoked together. Why is that? Because it's impossible for a mismatched pair like that to be effective in their work. They're going to be going in circles. A, a frustrated ox and a terrified donkey, I guess, is what's going to happen. It doesn't work. That you can't bind yourself together with an unbeliever. Paul's illustration comes in the context of the fact that the believers in Corinth, of course they're interacting with, of course they're socializing with their pagan friends and family. That isn't prohibited. We are, after all, to be salt and light in the world. But the line gets drawn at a very specific point in context here. The line gets drawn in trying to engage in any spiritual activity with the lost. You can't do it. For example, in 1 Corinthians 10, 27 and 28, Paul told them that if they, if they as believers are invited to the home of an unbeliever for a meal, terrific, go ahead and go. And in fact, eat anything that's put before you, but don't ask questions. And the reason he says not to ask questions is for your conscience sake. Don't, don't find out where the food came from so that your conscience isn't bothered. But if the host mentions, by the way, this meat I'm about to serve you was just sacrificed to an idol. The believer must stop and not eat. And listen to the reason. Paul says, it is for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. In other words, it does harm to the unbeliever for you to give them the impression that you're fine with trying to be in any sort of spiritual unity with them at all. And it'll violate your conscience. It's, it's harmful to the unbeliever for them to think that somehow you can be in any spiritual unity. You cannot blend the people of God with unbelievers in any sort of worship. It hinders the gospel and it, it waters down the gospel. Maybe this would be helpful. Satan's primary tactic in harming the church is not so much to fight the church. Satan's tactic is to join the church. Now, that's how he harms us. Generally speaking, when Satan issues a direct frontal assault on the church throughout history, it grows stronger. The church does. We saw that happen during COVID in 2020. But when Satan entices believers to spiritually cooperate with the lost, the church is weakened. The church is made more vulnerable. Here's a little news bulletin that to this day, so many American evangelical churches will not believe, will not embrace, and will not even admit. The church of Jesus Christ is made up of one group, regenerate, saved people who gather together. That is the church. Nobody else. Now, absolutely, we welcome with open arms the unbeliever to come hear the gospel, to hear the word of God. We love that. But make no mistake, they are not part of the church. They are not worshiping. And it's impossible for an unbeliever to worship God. It's not possible. God won't receive it, and we're not to pretend that He does. This is why the idea of writing songs, so-called worship songs, to please unbelievers is silly. They can't worship. How sly Satan has been to try to redefine the church as some sort of social outreach organization. It's not. 
The church is the gathering of redeemed people, yes, who are to proclaim the gospel to the lost, but not by pretending that the lost aren't lost. Across America, this Lord's Day, countless churches have redefined the gospel, redefined worship, and have literally designed their entire gathering to pander to lost person. And you know why they do that? Because Satan joined the church. Now, if you're someone who's here and listening and you have not come to faith in Christ, it is our desire, it is our responsibility, it's our duty to be cordial to you, to be kind, to be loving, hopeful that you will come to faith in Christ, but in no way whatsoever is it our desire to make you comfortable, ever. Our desire is for you to be so uncomfortable that you leap to the cross when hearing the gospel that the knowledge of the good news that Jesus Christ has offered eternal life to all who would place their faith in Him. One of the social pressures that's put on pastors, and every place I've ever been in the ministry has done this, it always has a local version of a ministerial alliance or a pastor's breakfast club, as I like to call them, which is viewed as a community coalition for everybody's good. And, and trust me, the pressure to join these things is intense. But these are organizations that have zero standards in terms of their biblical definition of the gospel and of salvation. It's open to Catholic priests, even Muslim clerics, and of course all manner of church leaders who are promoting infinite false versions of the gospel. Just so you know, none of our pastors here will ever be involved in any ecumenical organization like that. It's pointless. And they might say, and I get emails to this effect, minimum of a couple times a month, you need to join. You've been here for 10 years and you've never joined. The question is, what about the good of the community? That's the big one. Well, pretending to be spiritual, spiritually aligned with pagans is never good for the community. Proclaiming the gospel, representing a pure church who lives separate from the world, who all believe that we are sojourners and visitors and a- aliens and exiles in a world we don't belong in, that's how you help your community. Identifying with Christ goes into the home as well. Goes in the home. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul deals extensively with the difficult wisdom issue of how to handle the situation where there's two unbelieving spouses and one of them gets saved. This was a a common occurrence in the first century church and apparently especially in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 7.29, Paul deals wisely with the situation of a woman losing her husband to death and he explains that she's free to be married again, but he gives a condition. He gives a caveat. He says, only in the Lord. In other words, to continue improving the spiritual health of the church overall and to demonstrate wisdom, why would a believer in Christ ever want to marry an unbeliever? Jesus himself even said that being in Christ is a cause for division in the family. Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, to be very clear here, Jesus isn't speaking of the emotion of hate. He's not speaking of rage or anger. He's speaking of covenant loyalty. That faith in Christ will cause and ought to cause family division. To hate the unbelieving family member simply means to prefer God over them. 
And listen carefully, it also means completely disregarding family members' desires if that conflicts with what God requires of you in obedience. The gospel causes division. Or if you're faithful, it ought to. Matthew 10.34, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Can I put it this way? The phrase and the ideology, family first, is a form of idolatry. It's a form of idolatry. No, Christ is first. And the moment you're placed in the position to make a choice, your allegiance to Christ must be demonstrated. And certainly, if you can find a way to peacefully coexist with the clear message that Christ and obedience to Him is, is first, then you're free to be salt and light. But the moment, the first opportunity when family members present you with terrible choices which will violate God's law, violate your conscience, you must follow Christ first. Why? Because you are not of this world and they are. And regardless of what DNA you share, you must follow Christ. And the false self-righteousness of unconditional love toward even family members, this is a shame to Christ. It's a shame to Him. Matthew 10, 37, He said, He who loves father or mother more than Me is not worthy of Me. And he who loves son or daughter more than Me is not worthy of Me. I hope I've convinced you to resolve to identify with Christ. Let me give you a second resolution. Resolve to increase your faith. Resolve to increase your faith. People here in Nehemiah 10, they've resolved covenant obedience and they continue their specific commitments to the Lord. Nehemiah 10, 31. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not receive from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day or a holy day, and we will forego the crops the seventh year in the exaction of every debt. They've resolved to go back to keeping Sabbath, to keep the Sabbath day holy, keep it set apart, to not use Sabbath as a market day or a day of business. See also Jesus cleansing the temple at the beginning and the end of His ministry. They resolved also to go back to the sabbatical years, that every seven years they, they will, won't plant any crops and they'll forgive, according to the law of Moses, every single debt that's owed to them. The lesson there is don't loan out money in year six, because in year seven it's no good. Now what was the Sabbath about? The Sabbath was given to the Israelites as a sign of the Israelite or the Mosaic covenant, something that symbolizes their covenant relationship. These specific Sabbath laws, of course, aren't binding for the Christian because it was covenant-specific. The sign or symbol of the new covenant is the Lord's table. That's our sign of the central feature of our covenant. That is the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. So what did the Sabbath signify to the Israelite? What did it represent? It signified rest. It signified rest from labor. The Sabbath law is given as the fourth commandment and God gives Himself as the example that in six days God made the heaven and the earth, the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day He ceased and rested as it were. And it was a means for God to insist that His people trust in Him, have faith in Him. He began very slowly, 
by training them using manna, this bread falling from heaven. Soon after the Exodus, God told Moses that he would rain bread on Israel, and the instructions were clear. God would rain manna on them six days per week. On the sixth day, God would give them twice as much so that they wouldn't have to gather on the Sabbath. And the people were to gather a specific amount every day only and not to try to save it overnight. And you recall that some, in defiance to that lack of trust in God, tried to save it overnight and they opened it up to find it filled with worms and just completely spoiled. Now, why is this important? They were an agrarian society. An agrarian society lives off the animals, lives off the land, and generally it's a hand-to-mouth existence and that pursuing the accumulation of wealth by all rights really ought to be a seven days per week event just to survive. And God giving Israel a command to cease their striving and their labors one day a week, this is counterintuitive. This is, this is a big deal. You mean I have to give up one-seventh of my opportunity to feed my family? Just to be clear, the the Sabbath law was never intended to be a legalistic rule that if you kept it in the extreme by not even flipping on a light switch or turning on your oven, that somehow you're pleasing to God. That wasn't the point. The Sabbath law was meant to be a demonstration of genuine faith in Yahweh. The true believers have a, a repentant internal reality of faith and they trusted God for their provision, for God to provide for them. And listen, if... Ceasing all work and production of wealth one day per week seemed counterintuitive. They were also commanded to not strive after wealth, to not plant crops, and to, not, to give up every debt owed to them every seven years. If just once a week seems counterintuitive, giving up a year of income, that seems almost insane. It's counterintuitive. They had to trust the Lord completely for a year. And for Israel to reaffirm their obedience to this principle, to this law here in Nehemiah 10, this was a smart move. This was a, this was a, a, a good move for them. It was the ignoring of all the Sabbath years, the every seventh year rest. That was the basis for the amount of time that God exiled Israel. Do you remember? Listen to God's law and God's warning about the Sabbath years in Leviticus 25, beginning in verse 2. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I am giving you, then the land shall have a a Sabbath to Yahweh. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its produce. But during the seventh year the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to Yahweh. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. And then Leviticus 26, beginning in verse 33, You, however, I will scatter among the nations, and I will draw a sword after you. As your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste, then the land will, here it is, make up for its Sabbaths all the days of the desolation and you will be in your enemy's land. Then the land will rest and make up for its Sabbaths all the days of its desolation. It will observe the rest, which it did not observe on your Sabbaths while you were living in it. After the conquest of Canaan, Israel lived in the land as a unified nation for approximately 800 years. 490 of those years, they ignored the Sabbath year law for 490 years. Second Chronicles 36, 21 tells us, to fulfill the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land has made up for its Sabbaths all the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years of exile were fulfilled. 
70 into 490 every seven years. Every year they ignored it, they were in exile. Now clearly you're not under Sabbath law as a Christian. We've already established that. You are, however, under the principle which was behind Sabbath that you're to be a people who trust the Lord and not in yourself. So what does it mean to live by faith? What does it mean to trust the Lord? We could talk all evening about that, but let me just give you three simple ways to increase your trust, to live by faith. Three ways to manifest trust. The first one, suffering in grace. Suffering in grace. Truly embracing the admonition of James in James 1, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance and let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. One of the hallmarks of a true believer in Christ that is mature in the Lord is he sees suffering very clearly as given by God. It's for the believer's good, it's for my good, it's for your good, and it's for God's glory. Seeing suffering as an opportunity to be sanctified and made more like Christ. Seeing it as an opportunity to set a positive example for other believers and to be a disciple maker in that way. Seeing it as an opportunity for more prayer and for a more eternal perspective. Listen, we have a, we have a, a, a large group of Mature believers in our church who know how to suffer in grace. And it's a joy and a beauty to watch this that when the next thing comes, immediately they're saying, consider it all joy. So I'm going to learn from this. I'm going to get on my knees. I'm eager to see what the Lord will do in my life through this. I've seen believers smiling. I've seen tears of joy, not of sorrow. When they say, I'm eager to see what the Lord has done because so many times before, every time I suffer, He's been faithful. Living by faith, manifesting that trust means you suffer in grace and you do it on purpose. And if I could say this, the prospect of heaven is sweetest to the believer who suffers. It's hard to convince a 14-year-old to be excited about heaven. Pretty easy to convince somebody who's 85 and has more maladies than they can even count. Eternity is most glorious to the one in pain. So take your pain and suffer with it in grace because it's a gift from God. There's a second way to manifest trust, taking risks, taking risks. The Christian life is not to be a risk-free life in which you spend all your energy trying to mitigate risk, all your energy trying to worry about what might happen. Look, I can tell you what's going to happen. You're going to die. Okay, now there's nothing worse that can happen, right? But don't just be neutral. I would urge all of you to pray, Lord, what risk may I take for your kingdom? What risk may I take in this life to demonstrate that life of faith for the sake of things greater than just guarding my own security and safety? I'll give you a little example from the Old Testament. God mandated that all giving was to be what we call, what what the Bible calls first fruits giving. That you give out of the first of your income. In other words, the first thing that could feed your family, the first thing that could go in the bank, the first thing that could go in the barn, instead of it going to you, it goes to God. And part of the reason for that was so that you would trust Him for the rest. We give first fruits, not last fruits, after you've provided for yourself. Listen, I can say with complete certainty that living a life of taking risks for the sake of spiritual things is the greatest life you can possibly live. If there was time 
There are countless illustrations from Scripture of men and women who have lived by faith, taking risks in obedience to God and for the glory of God's work on this earth. Crossing the Red Sea, marching around Jericho, playing trumpets instead of launching an attack. Rahab risking her life to save Israel's spies. Jesus sending the apostles out on a preaching tour and commanding them, don't bring anything with you, let God provide for you. Here's a third way to live more intentionally, more a, 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 an increased life of faith. Pray bigger. Pray bigger. I'm not sure why we suffer from being fearful in prayer, but you serve and you belong to the God who created atoms, who created life, who created planets, who created stars, galaxies, the laws of physics which aren't binding to Him. Your prayers for effectiveness, your prayers for impact, your prayers for a life live to His glory ought to be getting more and more bold. What is there to lose? There's nothing to lose. Join the ranks of George Mueller, the English believer who served over 10,000 orphans and saw over 50,000 recorded answers to prayer. He lived a life of faith. And you know what the Lord did for him? He spent the last 17 years of his life on a little surprise preaching tour around the world. Well into his 80s. Join the prayer of the man in Mark 9 with the demon-possessed son. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said... To Jesus from childhood. And it has often thrown them both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the boy's father cried out and was saying, I do believe. Help my unbelief. That's a great prayer. Resolve to identify with Christ. Resolve to increase your faith. One more Great resolution from our text. Resolve to intensify the church. Resolve to intensify the church. The people made four promises in regards to elevating the priority of temple worship. In verses 32 and 33, they resolved to faithfully pay the temple tax for the purchase of things needed for the daily and weekly and annual worship in the temple. In verse 34, they resolved to supply all the wood needed for the sacrificial burnt offerings. In verses 35 through 37, they resolved to obey the law regarding giving of the first fruits and of dedicating to the Lord the firstborn of every family. And this, this giving helped financially support the priests and the Levites who helped them. And in verses 38 through 39, they resolved to obey the law of tithes, the giving of a tenth of produce, which was also to support the theocratic system of a nation centered on temple worship. And the very end of verse 39 says it all. The very last sentence of verse 39. Thus we will not forsake the house of our God. Now you recall they, they signed an agreement to this effect. They were committed to be a people who supported the worship of Yahweh in tangible ways. They were generous to do so in intensity. To, to strengthen the temple worship. To intensify what God was doing among them. And if they would do this, how beautiful and how glorious it would be to have this centralized worship which was strong and robust and have paid priests and gatekeepers and even paid singers unto the Lord. What a beautiful ending to these resolutions. Thus, we will not forsake the house of our God. 
the, the sacrifices being made right on time with a full complement of priests, Levites caring for every single detailed aspect of the temple itself, assisting the priests, gatekeepers providing protection and security for both Jerusalem and the temple area, musicians practicing their instruments and singers practicing in their choirs for special days of worship to present unto God with God's people glorious anthems of worship and praise all being supported by the people so that the robust ministry of worshiping God together could be magnificent and splendid and glorious and superb. When it comes to seeing the Lord do marvelous things in a local church, there's a wise saying which epitomizes really the principle of making the church of Jesus Christ robust and effective, and magnificent, and splendid, and superb. This is a saying which, in my opinion, is is lofty in its heavenly wisdom. It's a saying which explains the tremendous priority of the worship of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a saying which beautifully outlines what it takes to receive the teaching of God's Word, to worship with music that's uplifting, that's glorious, that's God-exalting. This is a, a little saying which perfectly shows what it means to prayerfully have an impact beyond the walls of our church. This is a saying which is very much the determining factor in how intensely a church impacts the lost. This is one little saying which is the very test of the true hearts of God's people. It's the barometer of a church as a whole. It's a a tiny saying, six small one-syllable words which from a human perspective are one of the greatest measures of the faithfulness of a local church. Six wise and small one-syllable words which, as we heard Friday evening at our banquet, have been proven out to be so true at Grace Bible Church. Six tiny words which epitomize the principle of strengthening and making robust the church of Jesus Christ, intensifying the effectiveness of God's work through the bride of Christ. And what is that gloriously wise saying? Six words. You get what you pay for. That has always been the truth. Or to put it as Jesus taught, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, of course, giving financially isn't the only way to strengthen and intensify the church. That's the focus of this final section in Nehemiah. But added to that, the much, much bigger question for every one of us is, what will I resolve to do to further intensify, to further strengthen, to further invigorate, fortify the church of Jesus Christ? What's your vision for yourself and for your family in the church? What's your vision to do that one more thing, to add one more to your ministry? What's your game plan for spending every possible moment in the service of your Savior? But as we must be reminded here, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah proves that without the new covenant in Christ, without the new covenant which includes the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, God's people cannot keep God's law. They cannot keep covenant loyalty and commitment. And we see this at the very end of Nehemiah. Nehemiah himself makes a discovery over time. Nehemiah 13.10, I came, also came to know that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his own field. The workers in the temple, the ones facilitating the glorious worship of Yahweh, had to go back to work to support themselves because the people waned in their faithfulness. And this is where you have such an advantage over the Old Testament Jew. 
You have the Holy Spirit. You have the law of God written upon your heart such that it's completely reasonable to expect that as you are faithful, your faithfulness will only increase over a lifetime. Listen, you want to live a thrilling Christian life? I do. You want to live a thrilling Christian life, then remember that you're chosen by God. Remember that you are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And you live that out with the example of God's people in Nehemiah 10 to resolve to identify with Christ, resolve to increase your faith, and resolve to intensify the church. We said Friday evening that in the past 10 years we have never yet had a year that kind of waned and went down after the year before. The Lord continues to do much. And while I appreciate the characterization given to me that I know everything that's going on in the church, we just had a leadership meeting this past Tuesday night and leaders giving reports. And I was surprised, like by five things I didn't even know was happening. And I love that. That is the church working as it ought to. And so if you will make those resolutions, and I don't mean this theoretically, I mean sitting down with a calendar, sitting down with your family and saying, how can we resolve to identify with Christ, to increase our faith and to intensify the church and making a plan Then watch as God works through you, works in you, glorifying himself and making inroads for the sake of the gospel. And you can come to the end of your Christian life saying, I lived a thrilling life. And I have, maybe not notebooks, but I have memories of thousands of answered prayers of glorious things that God did. What a wonderful life we have if we will trust Him and live a resolute life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You so much for raining truth upon us through the Word of God. We thank You, Lord, for these truths, there isn't a single page in our Bible that doesn't contain for us inspiration to follow Christ, inspiration to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I pray that for each person here, Lord. I I pray especially for the one who has heard about faith in Christ, heard about the cross, heard about this payment for sin, but has never yet appropriated that for himself or herself. I pray that in these moments, Hearing this message, there would be a, a, a pulling and a tugging from the Holy Spirit to bend the knee to God and to submit to Christ as Savior and Lord. Lord, I thank you for what you have done in these past months through Grace Bible Church, and we pray for this coming year that each individual would live a resolute life and it would result, of, result in great glory and honor going to you and you alone. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.